Hello and welcome to episode 17 of the Musician's Journey podcast. We've been listening to Alexander Ryder on the harp, and that will be the case on several more occasions in this episode. The titles are in French, so I'll leave them written in the show notes rather than attempting to pronounce them. Alex and I would, together with Anastasia Raspalia-Eva, who was featured in episode 4, attend some orchestral summer courses in Norway around 10 years ago. When you hear his voice slightly trailing off for a second, that's because it turns around to look at the harps right behind him in his room. And now, over to Alex himself. My name is Alex Ryder. Um, I play the harp. I work professionally as a harpist, teaching, playing with ensembles and solos just as they come along. I have a really special interest in more historical aspects of harp playing, particularly in France around the turn of the last century, around 1900, because we have like an explosion of really valuable solo chamber music, uh, orchestral writing that originated in France about that time. And that's to do with improvements to the mechanism of the instrument and also the quality of player that was being um, produced there a hundred years ago. Uh, and I've, in my career, I've focused on particular figures from that time. Perhaps we can go into that a bit more. So uh, I play a modern concert harp, but I also play on um, a French harp that was made in Paris by Erard in about 1900. And it has a very different sound and a very different way of responding to the technique of the player. So I spend a lot of time thinking about that, about those differences. Last year, I managed to crowdfund a nice CD project with some of the music that I've researched around uh, around this time. You know, of course, living in a pandemic and other personal issues, that's had to um, wait a little bit. So that's something else perhaps we can go into because it's um, something I'm quite open about. Um, and yeah, I love teaching. I love writing. I also edit the magazine of the United Kingdom Harp Association. I do lectures. I do talking uh, about my research about music. So yeah, that's that's me. <laughs> wow. That sounds like a full-time musician. Are you self-employed? Yep, I'm self-employed. You know, <clears throat> in England, uh, as it was, um, you know, there's a very strong, what you'd call gig economy. There's a lot of possibilities to freelance here. Um, so when you teach, it's very easy to teach privately. I also teach in the cathedral school in Chichester, where I have four um, heart pupils, but also have a roster of private students, but a lot of adults, actually, who teach me so much. I'm very fond of all my students. I have to be honest, I, I haven't got one student at the moment where I think, oh my goodness, what am I going to do with this person? <laughs> all amazing. No, not in a horrible way, but it's just, you know, it, I feel really lucky that I've managed to have a lovely communication with, with all my pupils and they all give me something back in every lesson. I'm never bored. Um, yeah, orchestral, the orchestral side, a lot of freelancing around London. I don't live in London. I live about 90 minutes outside, which suits me perfectly. I live by the sea. Um, but of course, you know, now we have the, the political landscape in the UK has changed a lot uh, in the past 10 years, a, a lot from the country I grew up in, actually. And it's quite 
I have to be honest, I feel quite frightened and worried about the political landscape here, particularly with Brexit, because, uh, you know, I'm sorry for anyone listening, I'm totally against it 100%. I think it's unproductive, unconstructive, unnecessary, and it's created a lot of bitterness on both sides. Um, But then I have to kind of, uh, you know, remember my place. uh, My job as a musician is to give something to people that they enjoy. And I'm really, I know it might sound kind of hippie, (laughs) which is fine, but, you know, it's my job to spread a bit of love and enjoyment and, uh, and something which is totally outside of the political debates. I think music is a valuable tool politically. I think it would be stupid and naive of me to say, you know, music isn't political because, of course, it is and should be. But I also think music has a place as a force for healing and bringing people together. And also lots of people, I notice audiences, um, you know, and, and adult students, they go to music to help them sometimes go into a space where they can confront the wounds of the past. And the presence of music is like a friend. It's very consoling for them. And, you know, and I have to be honest, I've experienced people in tears in concerts. I've cried in concerts. And I don't think it's just the beauty of the music. I think music has the power to take you out of yourself so that you can understand your life a bit better, understand things that have happened, understand things that you want to happen in the future. So, yeah, I think despite the political landscape, there's still very much a place for music. I think music is really important for the world that's going to be when all this is kind of worked out because I think it will lead to problems, confrontation, that will change the lives of many people. But once you get beyond that, that's where music can uh, can bring people together. Ooh. Getting deep. Getting yeah. Deep. <laughs> so, you know, so yeah, it's a full-time job. I'm, I'm self-employed, but it's also my passion, you know. So music seeps in to whatever I'm doing, especially this research, you know, that I do. I'm, because I'm so interested in people and in the sociological side of harp playing. You know, harp for a long time has been considered kind of a marginal instrument, I remember when I told my parents I wanted to play, they they were 100% supportive, but it was just like it came out of nowhere and they didn't know anyone that played the harp. So actually, unlike instruments like the piano, you know, a lot of the history of the harp, of the people that play it, is very oral. And things get passed down, but not written down. So in my work, I've tried to kind of go and speak to people. I've tried to go and consult primary sources and create a picture of some of these people that were creating important music for my instrument. Uh, and the person I've worked on most is a, a harpist called Micheline Kahn. Um, she was born in Paris in 1887 and she had something of a, a prodigious start. She came to public attention at the age of about 15 when she won her premier prix, her first prize at the Paris Conservatoire. And she galvanized a lot of great French composers to write for the instrument. So she, and she worked closely with Fauré, 
who wrote for her. She wrote closely with Couplet, who wrote for her. She premiered pieces by Ravel and Florence Schmidt. She was playing Debussy's piano music on the harp at a time where that was not really completely standard. Uh, you know, now we do it all the time. And even now, when I look at her concert programs from a hundred years ago, she was playing things from Children's Corner, which now, even now I kind of go, oh, wow, that's very hard to do. You know, that is not. Uh, and she was kind of this uh, enigma, this very enigmatic. So when I was being, when I was a student and I was learning this music, I would see her name at the top saying, you know, dedicated to Micheline Kahn or, and I would say to my teachers or people, I'd say, well, you know, who is this? And they'd say, well, yeah, you know, I've heard the name. I don't really know anything about her. So that was the light bulb moment. And actually, <laughs> when I see a name in, in kind of in context of the harp, when I see a name, I don't really know anything about them. I, it's then my little personal obsession for about a month to try and find some some things about them. So anyway, that's been really rewarding and really nice because a lot of people from my own harp community have been really supportive because they want to know they think wow that's really interesting we, we need to know about her and that's what's led me to acquiring the kind of harp that she would have played on because it's quite quite a different sound actually quite a different way of playing we still consider you know french harp playing to be the center of everything you know <laughs> in our harp world but it's there's something very um tactile and sensitive about really great french harp playing that just also, when you pair it with one of the old French instruments, um, you know, for anyone listening, I'm just <laughs> stroking. <laughs> up, yeah. um, you know, it's it just, it's a, a very much more intimate experience. And I think, I know you've had the wonderful Anastasia on here. Yeah. Uh, and there's something I know we've talked about. She's someone that influenced me hugely because when I came into contact with her, she was already an extremely mature musician. And I just remember listening to her play Bach and Rameau on the harp and thinking, oh my God, this is so good. <laughs> you know, and she's also someone with the intellect to back up everything that she's doing on the instrument and she can really talk to you about music. So we had some really stimulating conversations. Um, where was I going with this? So yeah, the, the, the reaction of the hands to the, to the strings on these old instruments is very immediate. You, you might remember as, as a non-harpist, you know, when you stand near a, a modern concert harp, hmm. it's quite awesome, isn't it? It's a oh, literally yeah. an awesome experience. I don't mean that figuratively. And that's because as orchestras have got bigger, louder, the pitch has got higher, the harp has had to evolve to, I don't like to use the word compete, but really that's it. It has to have an advantage in a big setting. So it's, they're built to be huge, to sound huge, to sound absolutely spot on. And they, and they cut through everything and they're magic. It's wonderful. But the wonderful thing about the old harps is that they um, have less attack. It's much more mellow. The soundboard is much thinner. So it vibrates very freely, but in a much more intimate and, and, and sweet way. So, it's been a joy for me to explore the repertoire for this instrument on the instrument for which it was written because the harp changed so much so fast you know it's like several hundred years of development in about 90 years mm. <laughs> you know it's um 
really quite special. So. Yeah, yeah, which goes parallel to uh, the string instruments as well, which yes. used to be more mellow and. Uh... Yes, I sometimes th- you know I love. <laughs> <laughs> my friends make fun of me. I remember a pianist friend making fun of me because I, you know, I love playing in the orchestra. It's just wonderful. Yeah. And once I remember playing something particularly bombastic and working very hard to play a lot of notes, which I'm not convinced anyone could really hear. Uh. <laughs> not to say that you can't hear it because there are many much, 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 much better orchestral harpists than me. Um, and thinking, God, this is all just a bit loud. It's all very loud and very high and very bombastic and very aggressive. And actually, sometimes then it's nice for me to go into my salon <laughs> and play my old harp and play some foray very gently. <laughs> yeah, I don't know quite where the harp fits into that largeness sometimes. But then also, you know, I've explored the harp in contemporary music, which is really exciting because the harp can sound quite vicious and that's always really exciting to show people (laughs) that it's not just you know hearts and flowers (laughs) so i remember talking to you about berio years ago yeah studying the sequenza and you were playing limo santale yeah you remember that of course because it was a very special you know this is memory isn't it you know you and that's why you have to be so careful but also not just careful, but celebratory. That's why I, I try and embrace people and whatever, whatever's coming my way, because it can create a memory for me or for them that's very special and positive. Yeah. But of course, power to go the other way. So I'm quite proud that I've covered already so much different music, and it's all music to me. You know, I I'm open to contemporary music of all kinds and period instruments and. I'm I'm finding I'm getting less interested in the standard repertoire <laughs> as I go along because, you know, the harp standard repertoire is a little bit... Well, we have a wonderful repertoire, actually. The problem is that there are lots of good pieces by good composers that people don't know about, but sometimes I go to a harp recital and I'm sorry, my lovely colleagues, and I look on the programme and I say, oh, Spore Fantasy, oh, um, Hindemith Sonata, oh, you know, and I think, oh, goodness. <laughs> there are other things. There are really other things to play. You can find... Because I remember learning the Hindemith, for instance, which is a fantastic piece and thinking, but it's really not my piece. I don't really play it very well. And I had to learn not to be ashamed of that. And then I found pieces that I think I do play really well, but they're things that people usually haven't heard of.
But you know, I, I don't know how you found it along the way, but you know, actually, I don't think this pandemic has been completely negative for me in terms of how I think about myself and how I think about music. Because you know, when the economical side of being a musician becomes quite urgent, it's completely forgivable and completely normal to get lost in those practical problems and think, well, if I haven't got concerts, how am I going to keep a roof over my head? How am I going to put, you know, gas in my car? Because sadly, in the UK, you know, I need a car with gas in it to move the harp around because that's that's just the reality. But it's made me realise that no, it's it really is music for me. Yeah, I've just got to find a way to uh, make it work. So I've been trying to examine the things that really haven't worked for me, and it's not really usually been anything to do with playing. It's been to do with all the baggage that comes with it. You know, interacting with people when it can be difficult, travelling too far for too little money. You know, unless it's something you've really got to play that piece, in which case, you know, I'd pay to go and play it. But you know. <laughs> Um, and actually having a calmer, more home-based life where I can focus more on my students, focus on my research, on the music that I want to play. And I think, oh my gosh, it was possible to be a musician and, and feel a bit calmer and feel a little bit like I don't have to prove myself, don't have to prove anything. Um, because I think that's truly one of the most unattractive attributes of a musician. I'm so sorry. And I'm, I think maybe people might be screaming at the radio as they because you know you have to prove yourself you have to win that competition you have to get that job and show everyone how good you are because that's how you're going to succeed that might be your way fine but for me I find that's to use your word I find that can be off-putting <laughs> and that normally when that energy comes into the room I go into my shell a little bit because I just kind of don't want to interact with it don't want to feed it because, you know, that energy feeds off taking from other people as well. Because if you need to be the best, you have to take away other people's power to feel that they're any good. I'm sorry. That's... <laughs> and people can write to me and <laughs> tell me how wrong I am. But I think if you need to be the best in the room, you have to... The first thing you have to do is level the competition. I think that's so ugly. So I won't have anything to do with that. I don't like competitive music making at all. And of course, to play in good orchestras, if you want a strong job, of course, you have to do the auditions and and be in that space and be the best and I good luck you know but I'd, I'd rather find a, a space where my personality fits in and has value which I think is why I think there's a lot of value in being a respected freelancer because you know for me in my work my orchestral work has been a lot of working when there's more than one harp two harps three or four even but usually two and playing second as a freelancer it's really quite a different job. You're someone that's outside of the situation. And in that way, you can be quite a safe person for the person you're working with. The person you're working with might have some anxiety about a particular conductor, particular solo, particular colleague. And you can just be there supporting with your sound, with your musicianship, but also with your personality and give kindness and listen and just feel like that good a little bit of support. Because, um, you know, playing in an orchestra can be quite lonely, quite difficult. There are lots of different things to navigate. You know, if you've ever seen a professional orchestra work when something isn't together, that is very illuminating. Because I've been in orchestras where something hasn't worked and everyone goes, OK, let's just have a second and let's work this out. Let's play this a few times. 
And when you work in that way and you have the space to do it, it always gets sorted. But I've also seen it where you're not playing in tune. You're not following me. You're not listening to me. You're not doing the same articulation as the violins. Blame, 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 blame. And then the person that's being blamed goes... (laughs) Sorry, I did like a little... (laughs) A little space there. It was like an anemone going back in, like a flower going back in. (laughs) You know, and I th- and I think, oh God, that's so wrong and so damaging. Because I've been on the receiving end as well, and that's not what works for me. When I feel I'm being attacked, I can't give my best. If we're working together to make it work, it works. So yeah, I- I've loved being that person outside who can just be nice and do and play my best, and then also go and buy the cups of tea while they're finishing the piece that doesn't need two harps, <laughs> and then I can leave the situation. And go back to my life. So for the, for the uninitiated, can you briefly explain what it means to be second harp? Okay, so um, having more than one harp in the orchestra has a number of functions. If you go back to when the harp was quite new in the orchestra, um, I say new because it was a continual instrument for many centuries, but when you're talking about orchestra in the modern sense, the modern symphony orchestra, when you go back to the 1800s, having multiple harps was about giving some weight to the sound. So if you go back to Berlioz, who was wonderful, eccentric, and he thought, you know, 30 harps was the ideal. You know, goodness knows what the tuning would been like, but oh my <laughs> um, You know, so I've played in many Berlioz spectaculars with six or more harps. And I did quite a memorable concert at the Proms a few years ago where we did um, The Damnation of Faust. And there was this wonderful scene at the end where Marguerite ascends to heaven. This lovely music with this choir of harps. We, I think we had six. It just sounds amazing. So it, it's multiple harps to build up the sound. As possibilities for more chromatic writing um, came to the fore, again, these wonderful French composers, Ravel and Debussy, realised that having more than one harp gave them freedom to have the sound of the harp, no matter how difficult the modulation. Because you see, the harp is what we call a diatonic instrument. It's tuned to one scale. But we change the key, we modulate, by manipulating seven foot pedals, one for each tone of the scale. So we start in one key, and then as we go along, we change key mechanically using these foot pedals, which manipulate the string and sharpen it or flatten it, as we say in English, pitch goes higher or lower. That's the simple way of explaining it. And sometimes, of course, we're only human with two hands and two feet. So sometimes the modulation just gets a little bit too much for us, too much for the instrument. So some composers realise that by dividing those changes between multiple instruments, you still have that exciting harp sound with whatever notes. So if you look at Daphne and Chloe by Ravel, you have these harp playing these lovely sort of shushing glissandos. But then the next bar, the second harp will play one in a completely different key, So, and which one player could never do. So it's about sound. It's about modulation. I, I mean, and then by the time you're getting to a second Viennese school with Schoenberg and Weber, we nearly always need three harps to play their single part because it's so chromatic. Um, so usually the second harp will be written in a way that supports 
the sound of the first harp. So you're almost creating a resonance, like a bath, a lovely bath or a lovely cushion for the sound of the first harp to sit in. I think it's, I imagine it's the same across the orchestra, whether you're playing second flute. So you get your share of notes to add to the texture, but it's, it's something with two harps, I think, that's about sound. And I think a really good second harp is someone that knows how to be the same, but slightly under, knows how to follow. I mean... I have to be honest, it's caused a few difficulties in my, in my life because when I'm playing second harp, I tend to really just refer to the first harp and not the conductor. Yeah. But that, you know, that's something I learned from Willy Postma because I had absolutely no idea how to play second harp when I first played in those orchestra courses with Anastasia. I didn't know what I was doing. Really, I promise you. And it wasn't deliberate. I just, I was, you know, English boy from a small town had only ever been really one harp in the orchestra. And I think being in youth orchestras as a kid, you know, I was pretty good. So I was always number one. So if there were other harps, they were following me. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, and I actually learned a little bit there about putting my ego in the back seat and learned the joy, the absolute joy of being a good second to a really good first. Mm. I sometimes wish I could rewind those moments because some of those moments with Anastasia, I'm going pink. He was, and I think about it. <laughs> so embarrassing. Um, but, you know, I learned. I learned. You know, I was learning. So, you know, come on, cut me some slack. I cut myself some slack. Um, and then later, I was fortunate enough as a student to play some summers in the Schleswig Holstein Orchestra. And by then, I was very comfortable playing second. And I can really think of one notable, wonderful harpist um, who was, she was literally, she was first, she was number one. And I was really happy being second. And it was just joy. There wasn't ever two notes that weren't together. We were so together because she was so happy to lead and I was so happy to follow. So it was a great micro kind of metaphor for how the orchestra should work. Mm. <laughs> people that are happy to lead and the people that are happy to follow and then it sounds magnificent i think if you're in a bigger section i think that can be more challenging yeah it's been a while since i played in an orchestra but uh, uh in uh, at these courses where we were playing together it was uh several years it was me and uh theodor Lingstad oh, of on, the, yeah. on the yeah. first uh, desk of the cello section and sometimes I would lead and sometimes he would lead and we were both really good at both leading and and following so when uh, I was leading I couldn't hear him play because he was so good at following and uh, later he got a I think I got a job as a section leader in uh, Copenhagen or something I'm not uh, quite sure but he's always clearly very talented yeah, yeah. Um, so you actually answered one of the questions I had uh, prepared, which Ooh. was, uh, if you can recall an experience that made lasting changes to your approach to music making. Wow. Well, the thing is, that's so many. Yeah. I could suppose I could give you an example of something that was really good and something that was really bad. Um, something wonderful that changed my approach to playing was... I think having the possibility to study with a teacher who I really wasn't good enough to study with. <laughs> I mean, 
again, I'm looking back on my past and thinking, oh God, that was embarrassing. But she obviously saw some potential. So as a kid, I started playing the harp when I was about 14, which is quite late. But I had a really good teacher and I was very determined to play. So my first teacher was Frances Kelly. And she was just the perfect teacher for a slightly awkward teenage student that needed some help. She just built confidence. She was so gentle. She was such a fine musician. And I learned so much about being a musician from her because for her, it was all about music. Um, on the other hand, she was quite gentle. So as teenagers do, I built up on my own some quite bad habits. And I had to change some things. So when I was 18 and getting ready for college years, um, my teacher said, I think you need to go and have a lesson with Gabriella. This is Gabriella Dallolio. And so I went on the train up to London, <laughs> having no idea what I was doing or who I was dealing with. Uh, that, that's not strictly true because I heard her playing in the opera and I thought, this is an amazing musician, unbelievable player. And um, she was so kind and so giving, but so unbelievably full of huge cosmic ideas about sound and about music. So I think the thing that totally defined my approach to the harp was having lessons with Gabriella and realising that I had an instrument where there was absolutely no barrier between me and the strings, just my fingertips. We don't use anything, fingertips and the string. And you create a stimulus or an idea and you put that directly into your fingertips and it's translated to the sound. It's probably the same with playing the cello in a, in a different way. So for me, it was just learning that the harp was all about creating a spectrum of really beautiful sounds. And I don't mean beautiful just in the classical sense. You know, when you're playing Stravinsky, you need quite a metal sound, a very hard and aggressive sound. When you're playing Foray, you need a round and and um, discreet sound. And that you can you have all that power in your fingers and in your mind to totally transform the harp it, it is it is an instrument that of so many colors and it's just all down to your well i suppose 18th century musicians would say fantasy it's all your fantasy that was the good approach um the thing that was negative was being on a course with a, a musician from a very well-known orchestra and i was finding something difficult and I mean, you know, perhaps I was old enough to know better. Perhaps I, perhaps it was my fault. I don't know. I was there to learn. And I remember in front of a whole crowd of people, this musician said, if you can't follow a conductor, don't play in an orchestra, be a soloist. And I'm sorry, but I really felt the motivation for that comment was not, oh, maybe this isn't for you let's do something else. What I heard was, you're no good, give up. And I think that's where I learned the power of words. Because you asked that musician what they said. They said, oh, I only said, you know, you're perhaps not good at this, you know, try something else. But what I felt instinctively was, you're bad, give up. Okay. And I had to really use that experience. And I look back and I'm indignant, really, because when it's your job to teach, when you're on a course with someone, and if you're teaching someone who is actually trying, who is actually practicing, who is applying themselves, 
You have absolutely no right. You have no right to tell them that they should or shouldn't play or shouldn't do something or should give up. That is absolutely outside the gift, uh, the motivation, the remit of the teacher. That you That is the one thing you do not do. And it's the one thing I will never do. Ever. And I think maybe that's why sometimes people come to me, sometimes younger professionals come to me to play something, an audition or a, or a concert program. And I think that is just the, such a high compliment. It really makes me feel amazing because I think I can be someone that no matter how bad it feels, I am amazing at helping people find the positives and find a way forward. Simply because I won't ever tell anyone they should give up. <laughs> I've told people to stop doing things that hurt them. <laughs> I've, 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 no, because I remember having a friend call me and they were just in panic. They were panicking and they were trying to record something and it just wasn't happening that day. And I said, stop, just, you have to stop today. Today you tried. And that's the important thing today. You tried and it didn't happen. That's not a failure. Put it in the bin and start again tomorrow. And you will feel 100% better and that was right so yeah I've told people to have a break stop what you're doing because it's not helping but mm. to give up I would never 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 so those are the two things making a beautiful sound on your instrument that and that is the joy of music is making a beautiful sound no matter the character of the sound and the other thing I learned was never put anyone so down they think they should give up mm. Yeah, those are my experiences. <laughs> That's so beautiful. Well, I don't know. You know, but and then also the, the the challenge we have as people, as musicians, is understanding something intellectually because we're intelligent people, and really then putting that into practice in your life is hard. Because I still have my lovely friend Fiona, the harpist. She talks about head gremlins, which I think is such a lovely. Um, image like these little bad fairies or goblins that live in your head and I, I make jokes with my pupils because I sometimes I'm teaching and I can see the little negative voice is going you know and I say oh I'll tell you about my negative voice my negative voice had this wonderful habit my head gremlin of I'd I'd play a concert like particularly a solo concert and as soon as I'd play this voice would go oh you've started should we have started? Were you ready to start? Oh dear. Page two. I'm still going, I shouldn't have started. <laughs> you, know, you have to learn to work with those voices, yeah. but also keep them in their place. And uh, it was, I, I was lucky enough, you know, I had Gabriella for years. And then as a postgraduate student, as a master's student, I studied in London with Imogen Barford at the Guildhall School. And what was so amazing about her was that she saw I had all these things from Gabriella that I wanted to keep. And she really respected those. And it was like Gabriella had kind of built the house and then I needed someone to come and just like tidy up and put the furniture in and make it really a home. She made it a home for me to live in. And it was her that kind of noticed that I had these really powerful negative voices that were making things not work. And she said, you know, you have to know that the voice is there. You're never going to get rid of it. Because it's also the voice that says, don't drive off the road. It's the voice that says, you know, when you go under the water to swim, you have to come back up for air. It's a voice that protects you. But it's also when you're playing music, it's a voice that needs to be there. 
but you also have to keep it in its place. And she said, it's like, you know, you go into the room and it's there. You're going, you're going to acknowledge them, but you're not going to engage them in conversation. Mm. <laughs> and I'm, that's been so useful. That's been also an amazing approach that has helped me. When that voice is very loud, I think, well, you're here in the room, but I don't have to engage with you. So, yeah. yeah. Well, it's really good you brought that up because maybe a lot of people imagine that when musicians perform, we're just completely submerged in the music. But actually, there can be quite a lot happening in yeah. our mind that yeah. it's usually happening at all times anyway, all kinds of thoughts about potential for a failure and uh, get back to what I had been preparing now get back into this state of mind I had the other day and uh, yeah I think there are a few things you have to understand as a musician number one is you can't be at your best 100% of the time it's not possible and trying to achieve that ideal is deadly I really believe that again people can throw things at the radio or computer The second thing is there are other things going on in everyone's lives. And I remember about two years ago, my mother was seriously ill in hospital, but I had a lot of concert work to get through. And I really did a lot of those concerts on autopilot because I was in survival mode. I was going to the hospital to be with her as much as possible. She's completely well now, may I say, but it was quite bad for a while. And... I had to kind of say, well, you know, if I play wrong notes or if I'm not really here in the room being the most amazing sparkly musician, it's okay because my flesh and blood is is sick and that's more important. And also it's like it's like <laughs> it's like the food you put in your body, you know. I think I'm I'm someone who loves food by the way. I think you have to put in healthy stuff pretty much 100% of the time. But of course, Every day or every week, every month, you're going to have a meal and you think, God, that was so delicious. I could eat that all over again. And I think it's a bit like that with concerts. So I think you, I think it's good to have a baseline and you think, actually, I came here, I arrived, I did my job, the audience was happy and had a great experience and I feel okay. So that's done. And then sometimes you have the concert that just is just mind bogglingly wonderful. And, you know, and you really make the connection with the audience and you are immersed in the music, you feel free. But, and that's not every concert. But I think musicians that can achieve that a lot of the time are the ones that everyone wants to go and hear. So they're the people that are really successful, people that are really at one with the music. And I guess that's what we're kind of all aiming for. I mean, with my solo playing, I mean, 10 years ago, I really had a phobia of solo concerts. And now... It's what I kind of really enjoy doing. And that's where I really feel I can just be free. And because it's only me and the harp, I actually find when I'm going into the orchestra now, that's when I get really nervous because I have responsibility to other people. I'm accountable to the conductor. I'm not just to the audience. I mean, again, that's a, a thought that you have to control a little bit because your, your, your first duty as an orchestral musician is still to the person who's paying to listen you're creating great music for them. It's not about you're scared that the conductor is going to be mad with you and also your top A is not quite in tune, so the flute player is going to not sound quite so nice. So, you know, there's lots to lots to think about. So, yeah, I, I think we all have to understand that we're all human. There are going to be other things going on. You can't give your best concert every day, otherwise it wouldn't be your best concert. 
Do you agree? I don't know. Oh, yeah. I For the past years, I've been working on tapping into whatever I'm feeling at any point instead of doing what I got the impression I should be doing while I was studying, which was to find an interpretation for this piece and then execute it in the best way possible in a performance, mm-hmm. like a kind of rigid idea of how to perform music. And when I stopped studying, I I don't know where it came from, but I just... I scrapped that idea completely. And when I was practicing, I was just feeling what wants to be played right now. And then the same piece sounds so different from day to day. And that's been a very valuable practice for me anyway. And there can be so much to get from any state of mind almost. Yeah, it's amazing how different they can be. If it's the same piece and the same person playing it, it's even the exact same instrument, the same bow in my case, and it can be so different. It can be so different, and I think you have to take some joy and some pride in that. And and I think we, oh, I think most people I know are moving away from an interpretation that's too narrow mm. of me. Now. I think now there's much more of an awareness that. Just because you didn't get an orchestral job doesn't mean you have no value. Just because you don't like competitions doesn't mean that you're afraid. You can offer, you know, I have so much, so much time and inspiration for people that improvise, that have the courage to sit down and play what comes into the room from the ether, you know, from the universe. I think that's amazing. I'm really interested now in going to listen to improvisers people that improvise, you know, free improvisation beyond mm. folk music or jazz, which is, has, a, has a, a methodology and core values which need to be met. And I still love folk music and jazz, by the way. But, you know, people that really just feel an instinct and then translate it to the voice or the instrument, I think that's amazing. And for me, it's that I, I'm actually now really proud of playing my little obscure harp pieces or my little obscure... 19th century harp and thinking, well, there might be people that think, I'm not going to get much from this, but I am getting a lot from it. And then I will attract the people that want to listen to that as well. And then that's just, what a luxury. <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah. I think, I think the world will emerge from this pandemic. I think musicians will emerge. And I think it will be that everyone needs to have pride in themselves and the conviction that they can move forward. And, and offer something that people want to hear and hopefully pay for because then you can eat. <laughs> yeah. Do you find social media helpful? I think social media is a very urgent question for anyone that's playing music. I think social media has a really high level of value because that's where people are now. You want to put your music where people are or... You want to put the opportunity to hear you in the way of people that use social media. Because, you know, if you want to do a concert and you want people to come, you know, it's the same as perhaps before put the advertisement in the newspaper or in your small community, you know, like where I lived, up on the village hall, (laughs) you know, you want people to see it and to come and to hear you and to share. I get a lot of enjoyment from just 
being perhaps on Instagram and someone that puts a really genuine little recording of themselves practicing something. And I think, God, they sound really beautiful today. And I think, wow, that's great. I've picked, I really enjoy that. I get a lot of joy. I get the opposite emotion when I feel that, what can I say? That the content is about being content rather than leading you to a more genuine communication. Do you know what I'm trying to say? Sometimes I'm afraid I hear something and I think, was this really happening or was this just for social media? Were you really at this point of practicing or did you practice this so that you could put it on social media? That I think is (laughs) (laughs) trying to find a good word. That's not a horrible value judgment, but I just, okay. It just does nothing for me and I can sense it and I move on. Yeah. Whereas when I feel like it's someone that's inviting me to share in their world and they're using social media as a tool to bring me that, then it's very interesting. When I feel that it's all about the social media, then then I completely lose interest. And I think I'm not the only one. I think lots of people, people are more intelligent than you give them credit for. <laughs> and I think it's it's a wider issue. Like I say, I've been found social media very useful this year for staying in touch with friends colleagues family even because i haven't been even seeing family you know because of this pandemic and it's great to say this was a moment from my day you know thinking of you all these are some beautiful flowers this was my gorgeous lunch this is i saw a friend i'm so happy and then all your common friends will go oh it's wonderful to see you together i think that is really useful and then you have the other kind which has been arranged and curated as we say in english we call it the curated life where you've selected everything carefully to give a certain impression that, and I think that is toxic. I think it's messing with the mental health of children and young people because they think that's how they should be. They should achieve this level of curation. And I think that's the problem that we'll have to deal with in the generations to come. So it's, it's identifying the fact that you can use it as a genuine reflection of your genuine relying, genuine life, or you can use it to create an impression of a false life. And it's the same in everyday life and it's the same in music. So yeah, in short, useful tool, but it's a tool. It's not the whole story. Yeah. Yeah. My relationship <sighs> to social media changed drastically this year when I started to uh, consider the possibility of doing music for a living. Because mm. then there was a very clear uh focus point or I had an agenda there was a thought behind how I used it and that hadn't really been the case before so uh, when I made a Facebook account again after break and an Instagram account for the first time I made an account on LinkedIn as well but that's just there I'm not doing much with that (laughs) and it's kind of a joke. I, I love that. That's kind of a joke in in the world, isn't it? LinkedIn, because LinkedIn. everyone kind of has one, but no one really knows what it does or if they even have it. They just know that uh. someone wants to join your LinkedIn. <laughs> uh, well, I'm showing my ignorance now, probably. Yeah, uh, yeah I'm, I'm kind of curious about if it can uh, lead to something. I have been listening to this podcast called The Freelance Musician Podcast. Which is, uh, it's a British one. It's uh, a British woman uh, who makes it. What is it? I think I know of it. Um, It's not one I've listened to, to my shame, because I think it's very good. I've heard very good things about it. Yeah, it's very practical. And uh, I remember one of the guests she had on was a freelance violinist, I think. And she said that for her, 
uh, most things happen on LinkedIn for her as a mm. freelance musician. But anyway, for me, I'm focusing most on Facebook and Instagram. And uh, this has made me, I think, more tolerant to whatever behavior I see others have in social media because now that I have this agenda with what I post and how I behave, which is to attract cello students for the moment and people who might need a cellist for any reason at all. That's yeah. my main aim. Uh, so when I see something that doesn't interest me, I simply think, well, this has just yeah. not been made for me. It's, yeah. as, it's as simple as that. They try yeah. to reach someone and that someone is not me. So I'm not even going to be a... What did you, what did you say? I'm sorry, I interrupt you. And it's quite difficult over Zoom, you know. To have I know, I know. Um, no, I, I completely agree. No, I completely agree with you was all I was saying. It's quite often you have to think, well, this isn't for me. It's not about me. I think what I'm talking about is the slightly more uh, shadowy, insidious part where I think someone has gone on because they need, they have a need. Which again, yeah, I think you have to have some empathy for but it's it's just content that does nothing for the music, does nothing for the person, and is just filler. It's just likes, you know. It's just it's not leading to something beyond the social media. I think you have to use it as something that leads you from that moment. Yeah, but I think something that complicates it is that uh, you can uh, read or listen to a podcast where they say, "Oh, yeah, to be more." successful uh, using social media you have to do this and that and uh, the algorithms uh, will favor those who post a story all the time you know all these things that then change how people behave so it's not all about what feels natural for me to do it becomes more about doing uh, what it takes to uh, what's it called to find the means to the end or something to achieve what yeah. you want. And, uh, and then this, this creates this very uh, strange behavior kind of inauthentic. Yeah. Yeah. I think authenticity is, is a really, it's a really useful word. Um, by authenticity, we're just meaning something where you're being as close to what you naturally are as you, as you can. But it's quite it's quite scary to be authentic, actually. Especially when you rely on so many factors as a musician. Because, you know, as a freelance musician, the best way to describe it, and I've heard it used a lot, is it's an ecosystem. You can't just arrive on the scene and just be there earning a living. For some part of your career, at least, you're going to be reliant on the perception of other people. For me, that was, you know when a more important more accomplished harpist wasn't free they have to recommend someone you want to be on that list of people that they would consider to send instead and then you know you need to when you're in orchestras which i make it sound like i'm playing in orchestras for a majority of my career i mean okay it's actually cyclical sometimes i'm playing a lot sometimes not at all and then there's you know the conductor you have to please the conductor then in england we have people called fixers so who people that will fix the freelance players for an orchestral concert call them up book them 
you know, in a, to an extent, your teacher, you know, when you're a student, and we spend a lot of years being students. So I think then to actually say, actually, now I need to start having a bit of faith in just myself and be just myself, that can feel a bit uh, frightening. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I can remember about four years ago thinking, I, I'm going to have to start being myself more. Otherwise, I'm just going to be trying to please other people forever. I'm enough on my own and the, the stuff that I want to do will be interesting to some people and I need to attract those people to come and work with me and that was quite quite useful I'm, I have to go and teach fairly soon. Oh, okay, okay. So, uh, so another five or five or ten minutes will be fine. Yeah, right. So. Uh, thank you for saying that. Um, do you have any thoughts about what it means for you to be a musician? I think to be a musician is a very privileged thing, and by, by privileged, I mean in a nice sense, but also in the more difficult sense. In the more difficult sense, I'll start with that. It meant that, unfortunately, the modern reality was that I had to have nice parents who supported me and who made it possible for me to learn an instrument. State funding for instrument lessons was quite little when I was young, and it certainly didn't cover the harp. Um, my parents were actually from a generation where it was possible to get free music tuition from the state, which shows you how much things have changed. I mean, my parents had quite ordinary jobs. My father was a policeman. My mum was an, it worked in an administrative job. 
worked very hard, but they loved music and they loved their children and they were willing to put money in to the investment for my future. So that was privilege. And I, not everyone has that privilege. So I'm very interested in looking now. I think it's becoming my, it's going to become our responsibility to think, well, how can we get music to people that have no privilege? And lots of people have been doing that for years. So I'm not saying that's not going on, but I think me, I think I need to now start examining the less selfish aspects of it. This is very nice for me also as well to be in my, in English, we say the ivory tower with my lovely harps and my lovely pieces with people who like to listen to lovely harps and lovely pieces. Music should be a right. It is a human right, whether it's your human right to listen to it or your human right to try and manipulate it in whatever way to shape the music for yourself. It should be a right. That's my belief. It's also a privilege that I am just so lucky because wherever I go, I can create a beautiful moment for someone. I can create a beautiful moment for just myself. And in fact, that was something I meant to talk about. I did put off my CD recording because at the start of the year, I had an injury. I'd never had an injury before. And I found it psychologically almost impossible to deal with. Um, I'm happy to say with some wonderful support from the British Association of Performing Arts Medicine and a wonderful therapist um, who coincidentally also plays the harp. (laughs) So I couldn't have a more perfect therapist. Um, I'm playing again and it feels great and I'm good and I'm healed healing you know because you know it takes time that's something people don't talk about very much because and it's actually very common to experience injury but anyway but when I actually couldn't play just just for myself I couldn't just sit down in the morning and play a few scales that was like I was like a bird without wings mm. and uh, and it made me realize how important and privileged it was just for myself just to go into this other world of music and create sound so that's my thought about being a musician. It's a privilege, a privilege that you're lucky and you're blessed and you have a gift, but also a privilege that, you know, the structures of society have made it possible for you. And that's something you have to be mindful of as well. And I don't know what to do yet, but I'll think of something. <laughs> but it's on my mind to give something to people because unfortunately inequality is growing so catastrophically in our world. Um, I mean, there was always inequality, but it's growing so much that it's going to be all of our job soon to try and help this inequality because it's dramatic. The good thing is that people are more aware of it. You know, lots of people. And I think, I think, yeah, musicians are good people as well. And I think, I think everyone's good people, but you know what I mean? I think musicians are, are good at, at looking around them as well. And I think a lot of musicians of my generation, they're totally aware of the problems with structural inequality, racism. I mean, you know, I, I'm realising that the harp is quite a white instrument and so I'm very grateful to some of... The, that's been an amazing thing about Instagram, some of my amazing non-white colleagues really putting out their harp, playing their music out there and I want to amplify them and show interest in them. You know, too many to name. So, uh, you know, I've, it's been really great this year to actually just add a load of... follow a load of... Um, non-white harpists on Instagram and see what they're up to. That's important. So yeah, privilege is the word, the good and the bad. That's my thought on being a musician in 2021. Oh, wow. You just opened such a big uh, can of... But there won't be time to go more into that. Uh, so since you have to teach? Yes, quite soon. But yeah. yeah. Uh, so where can people find you and listen to music and uh, read what you're writing? 
Well, uh, if you want to learn just about my music and the kind of thing that I'm interested in, I have a YouTube channel, um, Interesting Harp Alex Ryder, um, where I have some of my recordings of solo pieces, where I'm also talking about the context of the music, using photographs and um, original instruments and details about the history of the piece. You can also find me on Instagram, Interesting Harp Alex Ryder and Facebook. And it will just be, you know, with a lot of in, um, Instagram, it's a small part of your day or your life, which hopefully shows you the bigger picture of who I am. And you can learn about concerts and online concerts that I'm doing this year. Um, and as far as writing, then, you know, <laughs> you would probably have to subscribe to some very obscure harp um, journals, you know, the United Kingdom Harp Association Journal which I edit. But, you know, I feel like there's a book in there somewhere for me. So look out for that because I'm thinking of writing a book about the things I've found. So, and just contact me. You know, I always reply to messages. So, although my good friend, I do owe you a letter because you sent me a beautiful letter in January. It's still on my desk. (laughs) I'm looking forward to it. Write you a letter. I've still got all your letters. You know, Rangnil wrote me a lot of letters over the years and I've still got them all. So Yeah. <laughs> Rather nice mittens that you made me, actually. Oh, anyway. Wow. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's been so nice to talk to you this morning. Actually, yesterday, uh, I'm mm. not going to talk a lot, but uh, I had an operation yesterday and at some point I was thinking, oh, I was so stupid to, uh, to arrange for a Zoom oh, interview yeah. at 10 in the morning the day after an operation and I was thinking, oh, shall I postpone it but uh it's been just such an uplifting experience to just have this talk with you so i'm very glad i didn't um, do anything to change oh, that. i'm so happy you didn't cancel although get well soon oh yeah and you know, i think i love this i think we've all had that you know as musicians as well you know self-employed freelance you have to fill your own time and i so many times i thought oh i wish i hadn't put this right now <laughs> But 90% of the time, I'm like you, and I think, oh, I'm so glad I didn't cancel this. 10% of the time, I'm thinking, I really should have cancelled this. But (laughs) (laughs) yeah. 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 Uh, Have a lovely day. Thank you for listening. I'll include the relevant links in the show notes so that you can follow Alex on Instagram and receive a fair share of black and white photos of harpists as well as his own handwritten concert programs. For any comments to me, my email address is in the show notes and on my website ragnilvesenberg.com or you can find this podcast on Instagram.